If you have a Bible, if you'll take it out, turn it on, and go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to try to preach the message today in 21 different preacher voices. So uh, I'll start out with Billy Graham, and uh, I'm kidding, I won't, I won't do that. But actually, I want to start out with a little bit of an odd question for church. Uh, do you ever doubt that Christianity is real? Do you ever have any doubts about all this Christian stuff? Uh, imagine, if you will, that we were all born into this huge room. And in this room, there's no windows, there's no doors, but this is what we were born into, and it's all that we've ever known. And so we live life in this huge room. Well, some of the more philosophical among us begin asking the question, I wonder what's on the other side of the room? Are there other rooms just like this? Are there rooms where everything's turned around? I mean, where did the big room come from? Who made it? Is there anything beyond this room? Well, then into the middle of this room comes this light, you know, and, and this, this person from the other world comes down and begins talking and says, I come from the other side. I, I was there whenever the room was created. I'm going to teach you what life is like beyond. I will right your wrongs. And if you believe in me, then you can live beyond the room. And then the being just kind of goes back up and out. At that point, we would all face a conundrum. Do I believe this guy that came from beyond and says, I was there whenever everything began, or do I not believe him? And if I do believe in him, then he's my Lord because he's the one that can tell me where I came from. He's the one that can tell me why I was created. He has all sorts of authority in my life. He calls the shots in my life. And also, if he's right, then he promises me forgiveness. He promises me clarity in my life today. And he also promises me hope beyond this world. Now, obviously, the analogy is similar to what Jesus has done for us. He comes from heaven. He's born in a manger, and he comes onto the scene, and he says, I am. I, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was very, very narrow in his terminology. I'm it. I'm the way to God. There's, there's really not a lot of middle ground with Jesus. You either believe in him or you don't. You, you, you can't take that, well, I just think he's like a great teacher. You can't take that route because of what Jesus said about himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so you have to begin asking the question, what do I believe about this man who literally divides time in two? If I say, no, I don't think he's the son of God, then I'm still in the room speculating. I really don't have clarity to my life right now as to why it's here. And ultimately, all I can do is just make observations from the room that I'm in. But if I say, yes, this is the son of God, then suddenly all the things that he promises begin to become reality in my life. I have clarity to why I am here I have clarity to my relationships. I have clarity to my life calling. I have hope beyond this world. I have truth that guides me. And I also have a Lord who is my Savior who loves me. But there's still this question that all of us have to wrestle with. What if I get the Jesus question wrong? What if I say, no, he's not the Son of God, and it turns out he really is Lord, 
I've wasted my life. And at the end of life, if I said no to something that was real in the case of Jesus, I'm in trouble. Like, big trouble. If I say, yes, he, he's my Lord, and it turns out he was a liar, then I'm gullible, and maybe I've wasted some of my life, like this hour. But I also find myself in a hopeless situation, because if, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then really we find ourselves in a nihilistic, meaningless existence. We're just a series of cause and effects that really isn't going anywhere in particular. And if I say, well, I don't know. I don't know, maybe he's the son of God, maybe he's not. A lot of people believe that, but I just don't know. I kind of have my own beliefs, but I'm not really sure what I believe in. You know, I don't, I don't know. Then at that point, I'm just stuck in the big earth room. I spend my life speculating, I think, until I am no more. I want to introduce to you a guy today by the name of Thomas. Whenever we think of Thomas in the Bible, we normally call him what? Doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas wrestled with the Jesus question. Early in his life, he said, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. He followed Jesus around throughout his entire earthly ministry. He gave up the life that he had to follow Jesus. He had a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus. And then something happened. And when that event happened, doubt began to creep into Thomas's heart. Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was crucified. And the whole city saw Jesus died. And for Thomas, his world came crushing down. Well, then the unbelievable began to happen. People said, Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. And the other disciples even told Thomas, we saw him. He appeared to us. Yet Thomas was still wrestling with his doubts. The Bible records it this way, beginning in verse 24 of John 20. But one of the twelve, Thomas, called twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, notice this, I will never believe. Thomas was like a lot of people that I run into. Unless I have perfect proof, unless I can empirically prove that he is alive, I I will never believe. For some strange reason, I remain a cowboy fan. You know, I'm not sure sometimes. I I think I've been processing why am I still a cowboy fan. I think it's because when I was a little boy, they won Super Bowls. And you have those, those good memories. But over the last 20 years, it's really been nothing but disappointment after disappointment. And so I've made some observations about Cowboy fans. How many of you are Cowboy fans in here? Quite a few of you. This is Dallas, I guess. So I've made some observations. Cowboy fans, don't take this wrongly, we can be just a little bit cynical. You know, I I will not believe that Tony Romo is any good until he's holding the Super Bowl trophy. And once I have proof that he's good, it doesn't matter how many completions or touchdowns he throws, I'm not going to believe until I I see it. Now, Thomas had been there. 
He had these great memories. He, he was a follower, a fan of Jesus. He had these memories of the 5,000 being healed, watching Jesus walk on the water, the blind receiving sight. But then after the cross, cynicism began creeping into his soul, and he took this approach, I'm not going to believe unless I can see it, feel it, know 100% for sure. I love it when kids come to faith. I love it whenever you see a child, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and the light comes on in their soul, and they, they embrace Christ as Lord and Savior because they're so innocent at that stage. What happens, though, is the longer that we live, the harder it is sometimes to take that leap of faith. And some studies have said that if you don't come to Christ before the age of 18, there's, there's an 80% chance that you'll never come to Christ. Now, why is this? In my thoughts, here's, here's my conclusion. I think the reason why it gets harder to come to Christ as we go through life and take those faith jumps is because life hurts. We get cut. Our soul gets wounded. Life hurts. And in life, whenever we get a cut, we cover it up, a, a scab grows, and maybe we put a Band-Aid over it. But whenever our soul gets cut, we cover it up with doubt and cynicism. That's how we cover the wounds of our soul. So Thomas had a deeply cut soul. And he had covered that wound with doubt and cynicism. And for him to believe, he was at that point where he was like, show me proof. Well, after eight days, verse 26, his disciples were indoors again. Back in Bible days, it was kind of odd to be indoors. You normally spent time outdoors. I know that's a foreign concept to us as Americans, but they were indoors again. And Thomas was with them. Even the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Hey, big talker, heard you've been doubting me. Now, Jesus didn't really say that. I, I just thought it would be cool if he had have said that. But I can imagine the awkwardness whenever Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And Jesus is suddenly standing right in front of him and about to talk to him. Don't hurt me. <laughs> and Jesus says to him, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Then notice the last statement. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Believe in me, Thomas. I'm here. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Good response, Thomas. <laughs> you got that one right. He stands in front of you and says that that's how you're supposed to respond. But you know, I, I read this passage of scripture and there, there's so many different directions that I can go with it. But my, my initial instinct is just to read it and say, that's not fair. That's not fair. I mean, it's easy. Jesus comes into the scene, runs over Thomas like a train. Did you get it? Throws him past faith, past hope, all the way to proof. Okay, Thomas, faith and hope, not, here I am. It, you know, for Thomas, Thomas is kind of like a gambler who got to bet on the horses after the race. I mean, the proof was right there. Here I am, Thomas. Any questions? Now, I have to give Thomas some credit. Because he did believe his life was transformed. 
God used him. In fact, Thomas goes to India and starts planting churches there in the first century all over India. He died as a believer in Christ. I want to talk to you, though, about doubt. And specifically, four things about doubt and how it relates to our spiritual journey. And the first is this. It's natural to have doubts about things that are in the future or things that you can't control. I like, to talk, I like to talk about the three buckets of life. You have this small bucket over here that is made up of things which you have control over. And those things in the small bucket, your decisions, they guide those events and you have control over those things. And then there's a bigger bucket that you may have influence over, but you can't really control everything. You, you have a voice in it, but you're st- it's still beyond your control. And then there's this huge bucket of events in life. Things which are totally beyond you. Things that you don't even have any influence over. You have your foam, Rangers number one, uh, whatever they call those things, but you really don't have any influence over the baseball game. You really don't have any influence over what might happen the next day or if you're going to be alive a week from now. There's so many things in the future that are just totally beyond our control. And it's natural for us to have some doubts about things in life that are beyond our control. The Bible understands this, and that's why there's verses that say, hey, don't be anxious about anything. Instead of being anxious, turn to God in prayer. There's cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. It's natural that we all have doubts about that big bucket stuff in life that we don't have any control over. Second state, doubt is not the opposite of faith. A lot of times we think, okay, over here is my faith in God, and and over here on the total opposite end of the spectrum is doubt. And if I'm having some doubts, that means I'm not a person of faith. No, doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Not believing in God at all. That's the opposite of faith. Now, when we come to Christ, we put our faith in, in Christ, Jesus called us to believe in Him. Believe in me. So when we come to Christ and we believe in Him, most of the time, our faith is usually earthly in its scope. I believe in Christ, so that means I have forgiveness of my sins. It means that I have clarity to my life here now. Uh, now I understand the, the parent that I'm supposed to be, the spouse that I'm supposed to be. I look for opportunities to have a platform for the gospel like we talked about earlier. Uh, so so my, my life now has definition. And a lot of times early on in our salvation walk, we, we, we look at it as how it's going to benefit my life today. Now, over the course of life, pain happens. Someone close to you dies. A marriage ends. A relationship doesn't go the way that you want it to go. You have financial hardship, a health issue, just the disappointments of life. And a lot of times, whenever we are young in faith, when those disappointments happen, we back up into doubt. Now, we don't run all the way to unbelief, but we find ourselves on some sort of bridge of apathy where we continue doing churchy things, but we're actually living in a lot of doubt. 
Now, as we mature in faith, through God's power, we begin to push through those doubts. And we begin to have a greater faith, and we begin to focus on a faith. Now, catch this. This is important. We begin to catch, we begin to focus on a faith that goes beyond this world. So we have a faith in Jesus Christ, but we also begin to realize that faith is in desperate need of hope. Third statement here. Faith, hope, and love are what push you beyond the doubts. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a famous passage of Scripture. It's what we call the love chapter. Where do we normally read it? At weddings, that's right. In weddings all the time. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love holds no record of wrongs. And, you know, we, we put it on our houses. Any of y'all have 1 Corinthians 13 somewhere around your house? bunch of pagans? Come on. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, guys say, they're, hey, baby, this is how I'm going to treat you. You know, I'll never envy. I'm always patient. I'm always kind. You don't actually do that, but you try. You know, that, that's kind of your, your goal because this is God's love. This is a picture of God's love. Well, at the end of that list as to what perfect love is like, notice what the scriptures say in verse 12. For now I see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here's the context. Paul is painting a contrast between our knowledge on earth and our knowledge in heaven. And he says to us, today I see the world through my iPhone screen. I have three and a half inches. My world, I, I don't really see the big picture. But once I get to heaven, I'm going to see the world through Google Earth with unlimited zoom. You know, there's a lot of things that I can't understand, that I can't see clearly today that when I get to heaven, they will make a lot more sense. Today, it is constantly requiring that I have faith that God's going to take care of those things which are beyond me and that I have hope that there is something beyond the big room, that there is something called heaven, that there is life beyond the evils of this world. And so I, I need this faith and hope to abide in, to rest in, to find comfort in his love. In eternity, my faith and hope will be realized in God's perfect love because God's love will be standing right in front of my face. Now, this may surprise you, but in a lot of ways, this passage is really more about heaven than it is about love. Having that perspective that sees the other world in mind. Look at it this way. God's love is the eternal reality. God's love never ends. God's love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. But the challenge for us is that unlike Thomas, I don't have proof standing right in front of me. And so doubt begins to creep in. Now, if you want to move beyond these doubts, you draw near to God, and faith is your first step to really moving beyond 
those doubts. Now let me tell you what your second step is. Your maturation step is hope. Faith in God, but then hope in the reality of heaven. I I cannot stress this enough, you developing a theology of hope. This question that so many people wrestle with, why why does an all-God, all-powerful, all-good God have so much evil in this world and the evils and the disappointments and the hurts that people wrestle with today on earth? So many of those can be answered if we simply expand the lens to the reality that God calls us not just to faith in Him today, but God calls us to hope in Him for tomorrow. Hope is whenever we expand the lens, whenever I exercise faith and hope in my life, I push past my doubts to God's love. Even though I still may have questions, I can push past and abide in His love. Fourth statement about doubt. Your leap of faith is a leap into light and not darkness. Now, in Christianity, there is no getting around a reality. It requires faith. If you're wanting Thomas proof, okay, God, stand in front of me, come to my laboratory, I'm going to do a hypothesis, a theory, and I'm going to empirically prove that all this is right. If you're wanting that, you're going to be disappointed. Because at the heart of Christianity is a belief in the supernatural. At some point, you have to take a leap of faith. Well, for some people, that's no big deal. You say, okay, jump into the faith pool. You put your floaties on, you go up on the high dive, and you jump in, and it's easy for you. For others, it's a little bit more difficult. We talk about a leap of faith, and you go over to the side of the faith pool, and you put your foot in there, a little bit cold, and, and then you, uh, you kind of wade in, and you kind of, but, but you get in. You go ahead and you get in, and after a while, you, you enjoy the water. But for a lot of people, when it comes to jumping into the pool of faith, they stick the foot in the water, they look around and say, oh, a lot of people are having fun in the pool today, but not for me. And you go off and you lay on the side of the pool while everybody else has fun. And so you spend your whole life just speculating about what life is like in the pool. Because you have to have proof. You can't take that leap of faith. Well, I want you to understand that the leap of faith is not a leap into darkness. It's a leap into the light. God has invaded our scene so that we might be redeemed. He has shown us. He has revealed himself to us scientifically. The intricacies of creation point to a designer. Look at how creation is so detailed and how it is all put together. Does that point to something that is just random chance? You know, over millions of years, things were just kind of tossed together until suddenly this intricacy came about. I mean, the natural conclusion whenever you just look at the intricacies of the cell or the human body is that someone designed that. Intelligent design is is kind of innate within our understanding of reality. Uh, Artistically, life has beauty. Life has love. We pursue love. We don't live a Sheldon Cooper type existence. We desire love in our life and relationships in our life. And that innate desire for beauty and love, it points us to a divine artist. Philosophically, everybody has to have an absolute reality. 
There has to be something in your logic that just is the initial cause from which everything else derives. So is your initial cause just some inanimate energy or matter, or is your initial cause a a God? Philosophically, we believe that the initial cause was God. Uh, Morally and ethically, if there is no God, then it's difficult to argue timeless civility. You may have morals and ethics that represent a society for a season, but those will always be in flux. Morally and ethically, if there is no God, it's difficult to argue timeless truth. Academically, our scriptures have endured a staggering amount of of criticism, and they have shown to have a textual integrity that is vastly superior to any other ancient literary work. Not only that, but have you ever thought about the unity of the Bible? You take over 40 authors, 66 books, thousands of years, and there is a unity which runs throughout the entire uh, verse of Scripture. Historically, it's not just me saying, take the leap of faith, but billions of people over 20 centuries have anchored their lives in faith in Jesus Christ. As our church meets today, millions of people around the world are also worshiping Jesus Christ. I'm not alone in this. You're not alone in this. Billions of people have lived and died in faith in Jesus Christ. They have found comfort. They have found clarity. They've found forgiveness. They've found meaning through their walk with Jesus Christ. Practically, if I'm supposed to be God, then we're all in big trouble. Just ask my wife. I'll make a horrible God, and so will you. Well, Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he says something to us. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. Those who take that leap of faith, even though I'm not right in front of them, they will be blessed. My mind flashes back to the Beatitudes when he began all those statements, blessed are they, blessed are they. At some point, you have to take that leap of faith. The two biggest leaps of faith I've ever taken in my life The first occurred on August 23rd, 1997. That was the day that Stacy and I got married. Right around the lunch hour, I said I do, she said I do. Everything in our lives changed. Uh, There was a large faith factor to that. We didn't know what the future was going to hold. We're we're almost 17 years into this marriage, and we we couldn't script those 17 years. There's a lot of unknowns that we were diving into. Now, it wasn't a leap into the darkness. I mean, Stacy wasn't a mail-order bride or anything like that. We had dated, and, and we had gotten to know each other, and we had fallen in love. And so I saw her character. I saw her heart. I saw her love for me, her love for God. And, and I was putting my faith based upon what had been revealed to me. And many of the greatest blessings of my life have occurred because I was willing to take that leap of faith and marry the woman that I had fallen in love with. Some of you guys that have been dating a great girl for 10 years, go ahead and marry her. It's a fine institution. You'll love it. Okay? The second great leap of faith that I've had in my life occurred in December of 1977. That was the night that I knelt beside my bed with my father and I embraced Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Now, I was six years old at the time. I I had a lot of questions. There were a lot of things I didn't know about God. All I knew was that the Scriptures called me to believe in Him. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I needed Christ who had died on the cross for my sins. And I believed in Him. There is no way that I could have scripted how my life went from there. 
but I can say I took that leap of faith. I never doubt the fact that God loves me and he is my Lord. That relationship with with him is, is just at the core of who I am as a person. And the greatest blessings of my life have come from that decision to take that, that leap of faith. Listen, I know you may have doubts. We all have doubts at some level. But whenever you jump into the pool of faith, you find the water is pretty nice in here. And so my challenge for you is to take the leap. Take the leap. Be- believe in Jesus and anchor your life in him. Push through those doubts and live your life abiding in God's love. Be a man, be a woman, be a boy, be a girl that lives your life in faith. And if you're that Christian and says, yeah, I've done that, but I've also been hurt and I've backed up and I found myself abiding in the apathy of doubt, expand your lens of life Make sure that you're not just embracing faith, but you're also embracing hope. Because until you really get that view that your citizenship here on earth is only temporary, that there is much more beyond this world, beyond the big room, you're always going to be struggling with those doubts. You're always going to be wondering, is this all that there is? Why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't he do that? Faith and hope are what drive you to abide in the love of God. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please? As we come to a time of commitment, the band's going to come. And if today is the day where you need to take that first step, that first step of faith and become a believer in Jesus, I'm going to be here at the front row. And during this next song, I invite you just to come and see me. And we can pray together. And you can leave here knowing that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and the band's going to lead us in a time of worship. And I... I venture to guess that in this room today that there are some that find themselves living in the apathy of doubt. You're still at church. You're still doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, yet residing in your heart is doubt. And I pray today that you might take that leap of faith anew. I pray today that the the Lord will show you how faith and hope reveal a, a bigger world than what you've ever imagined. How through faith and hope your life revolves around Him and what He's doing and that there is comfort whenever those that we love die. There is comfort whenever we realize that our time is slipping. There is hope of a world where there just isn't so much evil, where sin doesn't reign in so many corners. That faith and hope are real. And so too is the love of your heavenly Father. And He invites you to abide in that love. To live in that love. To know Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time where we gather as a church. As we worship You, Lord, help us not to hold back our hearts. Help it not merely to be words from our lips, but Lord, may we sing praises to You from our soul. Father, we pray that this time where we've opened the Scriptures and looked at truth from Your Word that it will not end at the end of this hour. Instead, Lord, we pray that it might transform our lives, transform our homes, our relationships, our community. May we be new people because we abide in your love. And Father, for those of us that are wrestling with doubts, may your Holy Spirit drive us to faith and hope, and may we abide instead of doubt in your love.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray and worship. Amen.